0: folks, welcome to the HeMind Pulse. It's really a pleasure to have Dr. Jorge Cortez with me on the HeMind Pulse today. Jorge, welcome to the HeMind Pulse. I appreciate you taking the time of your busy schedule today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So uh, maybe a quick intro a little bit about you because, uh, you know, where you are now and, and what you do day in and day out. Well, I, uh, I'm uh,
1: currently at the Georgia Cancer Center at Augusta University. This is a, uh, a position I've been I've been doing here. I, I've served as a director of the cancer center since uh, September of 2019. So I, I have a lot of administrative responsibilities in that role, but I still do my clinical duties. I, I enjoy seeing my patients. Uh, I still do my my clinical research. So I I, I carry a few hats,
0: but I'm enjoying it. And you were uh, you were at MD Anderson for a long time before moving to uh, Georgia Cancer.
1: That is correct. I was there for twenty-seven years. That included my training and then uh, and then my my tenure on, on faculty. So I'm I'm officially retired uh, from from MD Anderson. So. <laughs>
0: Now, I got to know you through a lot of the work that you've done over the years on CML, chronic myelogenous leukemia. Is that, the, is that what you're still focused on in, in Georgia, or did you expand beyond CML?
1: Well, you know, I throughout my career I've done a lot on on myeloid malignancies. I've done a lot of work in being acute myeloid leukemia. You know, recently I worked and unfortunately was able to get the approval of olutaside uh, and even IDH one inhibitor and and have wording in, in uh, with uh, with they gave that that also was approved for uh, for AML. Uh, but certainly, you know, within myeloid malignancies the last uh, couple of decades uh, there has been a boom in in cml in terms of the research and and i've been very heavily involved in that and i continue being very heavily involved with that uh, here with some of the new drugs and some other research that i that i continue doing so it, it is definitely still a big part of what i do
0: and really, you have done so much. I mean, your, your fingerprints on the world of myeloid malignancies in general and CML in particular is something that all of us have, had, have admired. And uh, Thank you. A lot of gratitude to you and to your team uh, for advancing the field. Now, um, with advancing the field, there are a lot of uncertainties that evolve usually, as you know, and some of these uncertainties are very important to regular oncologists that are uh, in the community taking care of these patients. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about how we treat CML and focus a little bit on the chronic phase, and maybe we'll talk about other phases as well. But uh, um, today, a patient walks into your clinic with chronic phase CML there are so many of these BCR-ABLE inhibitors, mm-hmm. and uh, from Gleevec to second generation, third generation. How, how do you make a choice, and how do you advise uh, clinicians to decide um, which of these BCR-ABLE inhibitors to choose from?
1: You know, the the advantage of having the, those many uh Options is that you can make selections and you can find one that fits better a patient or another. Um, the disadvantage is that sometimes it makes it confusing and, and makes it difficult to do. You know, what, what do I do now for an individual patient? Uh, <clears throat> I would say that in general, if we think about a newly diagnosed uh, patient, there are four drugs approved: the imatinib, the, satinib, the lotinib, and bosutinib as initial therapy. So so the first thought is, do I use imatinib or do I use a second-generation TKI? I will tell you that, in principle, I am in favor of using a second-generation TKI as initial therapy. And and one way of putting it is, if I was diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia, I'm going to take a second-generation TKI. I have no questions about that. Um, I do think that the benefits that you get with a second-generation are valuable. You get earlier responses, you get faster responses, but in particular, you get to the deeper molecular responses that offer the potential of treatment discontinuation um, in a higher percentage of patients. So after 10 years or so, mostly about 50% of patients that start with a second-generation TKI are going to be eligible for considering treatment discontinuation, Versus only about 25 or 30 percent of patients that are taking imatinib. So because of that, I would take a second-generation TKI, and then you can decide of the three second-generation TKIs based on comorbidities, um, expected toxicities, how that fits with your with your lifestyle, with your with your prior medical issues, uh, even the schedule. You know, there's once a day, there's twice a day, and, and, and all these things um uh, but having said that i think that there is a couple of things that we we need to emphasize number one is that we need to involve the patient not everybody is that interested in treatment free remission uh, in the end you know after all if if all you need to beat cancer is to take a pill for the rest of your day that's what we do for blood pressure and for you know diabetes and so on so so for many patients they they prefer to to decrease the risk of serious side effects and things like that. Um, and, and that brings me to the second point, which is imatinib is a pretty good drug. You know, it works well. And um, and most patients are gonna do well and going are gonna have a normal life expectancy with imatinib. There may be fewer that are gonna be eligible for treatment discontinuation, but they're gonna be fine. You know, we are gonna be having near normal life expectancy and then number three even with the second generation tkis we need to keep in mind that not everybody's going to be able to successfully stop therapy i mentioned only about 50 percent are going to be eligible and of those about 50 percent are going to relapse so it's really a reality for a quarter so we need to bring all these things and involve the patient on the conversation what do you do you know it it it, it, it I imagine it is safer in terms of, yes, it has more muscle cramps and periorbital edema, but you have far fewer heart attacks and strokes and things like that. I, I certainly would rather have more bags under my eyes than a heart attack. So, So we need to balance that. And I think that sometimes we've been a little too obsessed on the lowest possible PCR value and lose the context of other elements that are important, such as, Risks and comorbidities and side effects and things like that.
0: Well, what do you say to the concept of let's start everyone on imatinib? Like, if you have a hundred patients that walk in the door, hundred of them start them on imatinib, and then for those who, for example, don't achieve a particular metric on imatinib, these are the ones you may switch, and all of this because. Is there a way to tell beforehand who is going to respond better to imatinib or not? I'm trying just to think, you know, why not just start everyone on imatinib and then switch if you don't get what you want with a cheaper drug, maybe, and a fewer side effect drug?
1: I don't think that's a bad strategy. I I don't think that's a bad strategy at all. Um, You know, there was a study that was done um, that was called the NSCMR. In that study, it, it kind of approached that that strategy that you're mentioning. These included patients who were on imatinib, and were doing okay, but not quite to that deepest molecular response. And then they were randomized to continue on imatinib or switch to nilotinib. And and yeah, more patients who switched to nilotinib achieved that deep molecular response and so on. So now, granted, this is an extrapolation, but if you take the patients who who reached the deep molecular response straight on imatinib, Uh, and then you add the patients who didn't and switch them to nilotinib, you pretty much end up in the same place as if you had started everybody on nilotinib. So, you know, the end results may be about the same. Now, granted, yes, I'm extrapolating and I'm, you know, combining numbers here and there, but I don't think it'll be too far off from that, from that calculation. Uh, and of course, there are benefits of that. Number one, the financial benefits, because at least at the moment, imatinib is uh generic and preferably inexpensive nowadays. Two, um, again, it's safer for the from the arterial occlusive events. And yes, I'm gonna change some to to let's say in a lot of. The need, but then I'm going to use the lottery only on a fraction, not on everybody from the beginning. So I'm going to have fewer heart attacks and, and things like that. So um, it is not a bad strategy. I think we've, you know, I think that we probably did a disservice, which from the academic perspective, from, from understanding the disease and understanding the treatment, it was a good thing. But in terms of the message, was probably a bad thing that emphasis on that three month response. To me, that has been a killer because now that's an obsession that we want to change everybody, you know, quickly and and get them to the fastest and whatever. Where you know patients can be okay for a long time, and you can do the switch later on. You know, if those patients were falling behind. I think we need to strike a balance. You know, we don't want to have somebody who's clearly failing not switching to a another therapy. That doesn't. Yeah. Do a good job for the patient, but we don't have to be that obsessive with with every you know last little valley.
0: You you did mention the three months, and this just makes me think of how you assess uh, metrics or measures of success. Uh, kind of so, once you start the patient on whether it's imatinib or something else, um, how do you monitor these patients? Obviously, the CBCs and all of that are easy to to monitor. Mm-hmm. But in terms of looking at um, molecular responses, you mentioned the three months. Um, is this still what you do? do? If you see a log change, you keep going. Like, wh- how do you how do you guide clinicians in terms of uh, uh, monitoring these patients?
1: Um, I do uh, a PCR every three months for the first year. I do want to know where the patient is at three months um, from the start of therapy but i don't necessarily want to change the the treatment it's one thing if the patient has completely not had any improvement yeah sure that patient's gonna have to change very likely that patient probably has you know something else another mutation or something um but the majority of patients are doing okay now some of them are not going to be below 10 percent they may be you know 15 20 25 um I want to understand the context where that's happening. Maybe it's because I had to stop therapy for a little while because of mild suppression that happens frequently. Maybe the patient was having some nausea or, and, and I had to, to take some breaks and, and and things like that. So it's very, very rare that I change somebody at three months. I really would, like, would need to see a lack of hematologic response, a PCR that has not moved at all. So I I don't act that immediately at at three months, but I do want to see where it's going. I think it's a good guidance for the patients. It's a good opportunity to discuss the patient's side effects, uh, adherence, you know, all these things, and guide them as to what what else can I do to to help you take your drug better and and minimize interruptions and things like that. Um, And then, you know, six months, nine months, 12 months. Once the patient is stable, I go to every six months. And and I also see that there's sometimes a a lot of tendency to to do the PCR very frequently. I've seen every month and things like that. I don't think very, very seldom do I see a need to do anything more than every three months and for a stable patient every six months.
0: Jorge, you mentioned something about um, the new generation of uh, TKIs uh, might have higher chance of uh, treatment interruption without any uh, adverse uh, problems. Um, has there ha- Have these newer therapies shown to reduce the possibility of transforming into accelerated phase or blastic phase of CML?
1: Yeah, with the sec- starting with the frontline, with the second generation TKIs, um the rate of transformation is lower than with imatinib but we also need to remember you know going back to what we were talking at the beginning that the rate of transformation is already pretty low with imatinib it's single digits it's it's lower with with the second generation but it's already down with single digits for patients who are taking their medication and 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 doing you know with with imatinib so, so the rate of transformation on on patients um, who are who have access to the medications and are, are taking their medication and all that, it, it's pretty low anyway with, with any of them. Um, yeah, it, it goes down with the with the more advanced therapies, but but we are already in a good position in terms of transformation um, even with the math.
0: You mentioned something about certain mutations that might occur that lead to resistance um, of these. Um, What kind of mutations do we know about, and are there particular therapies that are more effective if you detect such a, quote-unquote, I guess, resistant mutation?
1: Yeah, well, and and what's interesting is that we're learning about two types of mutations. First is the the able kinase domain mutations, you know, the the ones that we've heard from the beginning, the P-loop and the T359, you know, all these kind of mutations that prevent the binding of a given drug and you switch to another one and all, and all that. So those are helpful because it can help guide the um, treatment that you're going to do. Um, we don't assess them at the time of diagnosis because they don't they don't happen then. You, you really need to do them only when the patient has clear evidence of failure. It's not even for the patient who's not getting to a deep molecular response. You're not going to find mutations there. It's a patient who's really having a, a true failure, who's you know lost the response, who didn't even get to you know less than ten percent or things like that. Uh, and it can guide that, you know with the newest drug. Um, the, which is Asiminib. Uh, that's the first drug that's what we call an allosteric inhibitor. It's a, it, it binds to these meristol pockets. So it binds in a completely different place. Um, so it brings a different type of mutations because these are mutations. The mutations that would uh, not let Asiminib work are in a completely different area than the mutations that we see for all the other TKIs, which are. ATP competitive inhibitor. So we start to see a different type of mutations there. Um, now, one thing that I always emphasize is that sometimes for me, the most difficult patient is the patient without a mutation. And you see that with, with these new drugs with the most, you know, the, the most the latest generation ponatinib, assimilative, the response rate is lowest for the patients who don't have a mutation. And, and and if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. You know, if you have a mutation because this drug was not working and you can switch to another one that works, well, then you understand the mechanism. You know what's happening and, and a change of drug may be useful. If they don't have a mutation. What is the mechanism of resistance? So why is that patient not responding? And then, therefore, is is a change what's needed or is it just something completely different? So that brings me to the second type of mutations that more recently we started to recognize, which is that now we know that some patients with CML have mutations in other cancer-related genes, ASXL, TED2, Bronx 1, you know, the, the same that we hear in, in other cancers in other leukemias and so on. And those can be present at the time of diagnosis. And those patients tend to have a A worse response rate, a higher rate of transformation. Um, We're not doing that routinely at diagnosis, but I'm starting to do it more on patients who have these unexplained failures to see what's happening. And and I'm finding them quite a bit in those because you know in that particular patient population, Um, we don't know what to do with those patients because that's not a that's not a TKI thing. You know, ASXL is not inhibited by by a TKI, so changing to another TKI is probably not gonna address the issue. So that's a new area where we're still trying to understand what do we do with these patients? What's the answer? Uh, and, And maybe we need to stop thinking about transplant for some of these patients um, as as the answer, and, and go back to something that we kind of abandoned for a yeah. while.
0: I I was I was I mean my last two questions actually one of them was going to be um, who who would be a patient that you would still consider an allogeneic transplant for? When I was in training, frankly, that was the standard of care in patients yeah. the donor and all that stuff. And the second question is um, what is what's on the horizon for CML? Like if you, if you're going to do a CML. Trial or for new drug on CML, it seems like it's such a hard market to get into, just because <laughs> you have so if so many effective therapies. So the first question is, who would you do allogenic transplant to today in 2023? And second question is, what's on the horizon? What's exciting you? What are you looking forward at ASH and other conferences to see in the world of CML?
1: In terms of transplant. Um... You know, the the obvious answer for a while has been the patient who's gone to blast phase. Um, usually you would give them some treatment, get them back into chronic phase and transplant. That patient is a clear indication for transplant. Maybe the patients who have transformed to an accelerated phase, um, although you know you can still get some responses with TKIs, but if they've transformed to an accelerated phase already on a second generation TKI, for example. Uh, and certainly on a, on a later-generation TKI-pronadmini or a CIMI, that patient needs a transplant. But I am starting to rethink the transplant in chronic phase, particularly for those patients that I mentioned earlier. You know, a patient that has um, a mutation in another gene and is not responding to therapy, I need to start thinking about transplant early because that patient is not going to have a good long-term prognosis. I'm not going to fix it with a more potent TKI um, and, and you know until we know what's another alternative way to treat that patient, transplant is probably the best option for those patients. So, so I think we need to start rethinking in, earlier in those chronic phase patients. And it's not an insignificant number of patients. Probably about uh, 15% of patients will have these mutations, maybe even a, a little bit more. Uh, in terms of the new things happening, well, there are New drugs and new indications for some of the newer drugs, for example, asimineve. There's a lot of studies moving into second-line and first-line therapy and all that. Um, and and that's exciting. I think its it, it'll be very interesting to see what asimineve can do as a frontline. It's a great drug for patients who have had two or three drugs already or T359. It works. It has very high levels of activity. It's very safe. Um, so I do expect that in front line and there's a lot of studies going on it'll have a very high levels of response, maybe increase the number of, of, of MR 4.5s and so on What I don't know is how much it'll catch in the clinic you know how much it'll really you know so so from an academic perspective I you know I'm I'm leading one of these trials because I'm, I'm very interested to, to to understand what it can do I don't know that it'll become the standard of care for for the majority of patients i think that we'll use it in some patients maybe the highest risk patients is the high risk so-called and, and things like that um but you know again the the large percentage of patients will be fine with them with imatinib so we'll need going i need to them from there figure out what to do with that the, there's a, a couple of other drugs being developed and then they they plug niches and and things um that's interesting. To me, the biggest question is, two biggest questions for research in the future is, how do we increase the number of patients that are eligible for treatment discontinuation? I mentioned that successfully, 25%. I mean, we can play with the numbers, but it's a minority. Uh, and the second one is, these, these new mutations in other genes, you know, what do we do with those patients? Those questions are still very unanswered, and, and I don't know that there's anything out there that that is starting to more definitively answer those questions
0: you know and i'll have to say i mean as you design these trials it's really impossible to have overall survival as endpoints when you're perspective yeah. i mean patients are like you said imatinib patients live like normal life so you have to have these endpoints on the molecular level or maybe lack of transformation or something right i mean it's it's hard to uh, to do it differently
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this, these, you know, that's the, the thing that the endpoints are, are shifting completely from what we did at the beginning 20 years ago from what we're doing now. Uh, and we're counting on a lot of surrogate markers.
0: Yeah. Well, Dr. Jorge Cortez, thank you so much for visiting on the Mind Falls. I look forward to seeing you at ASH, and I really appreciate everything you're doing on behalf of the patients. It's my
1: pleasure. I enjoyed our
0: conversation. Thank you for having me.